Uh, dear Lord, we just uh, thank you for this time that you've given us to come and meet again after our Thanksgiving break. And uh, we have a lot to be thankful for, uh, including your word and what it teaches us about uh, just how sure we can be of the salvation that you have given to us. And so we just pray that you just uh, open up our uh, ears, open up our hearts so that we can uh, gladly receive your word tonight. So I just thank you in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, welcome back, everybody. So I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. It's funny how like, everyone's like on this side. Yeah. Hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving wherever you were. Uh, but now that we're back, uh, we're going to continue our series on what we believe. Uh, so our church has 21 articles of faith, uh, each explaining how this church, according to the Bible, understands God, man, salvation, and the believer's role in the church and in the world. And you can find these articles of faith on our website at www.sfbible.org. And so far, uh, we've covered what we believe concerning the Bible, namely its inerrancy. Uh, it's the verbal, plenary, inspired word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. Uh, we also covered the Trinity, uh, each member of the Godhead. Now, each, the person, we've covered the work and the person of God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then we went over uh, the total depravity of man. Uh, and then we juxtaposed it with the great glory of uh, our God in our salvation. And so for some of you or for some of us, uh, especially those who have been Christians for some time, uh, maybe even or some or even all of what we cover in this series might not be new, right? Or might not be anything new. Uh, it might be areas of scripture where you're already pretty familiar with. Um, but hopefully this series isn't just meant to inform you on what the church believes or even to tell you that because this is what the church believes, uh, this is what you should believe too. Um, my hope for you is that what you take away uh, from our series is more than just knowledge. Right? Whether you've heard it before or whether it's something new, uh, I just hope that this is more than just an exercise in theology. Because if all you get from this series is a little more knowledge, uh, you're going to be missing out a lot. Uh, the knowledge from Scripture we have needs to develop into wisdom and conviction. Right? It needs to shape and change all aspects of our lives, how we live, how we think, how we view ourselves, how we view the world, right? how we view and respond to trials. Right? It should affect how we worship, how we pray, and how we interact with one another. But if all, you, or, but if all we have is knowledge, then what does it do? Right? If all you have is knowledge, what happens? Right? It makes us prideful. Right? It puffs up. Right now, Isaiah's favorite food, there are these things called puffs. Okay? Now, if you work in the nursery, maybe you're familiar with what these are, right? They're these little star-shaped cereal snacks that are supposed to help baby learn how to eat solid foods, right? And so, and, you know, teach them how to put food in their mouth, how to feed themselves, and on their own, they're, you know, they're, they're light and they're crunchy. But by design, once a baby puts it in their mouth, it starts to fall apart. Like, once it starts to get wet, Right? It begins to dissolve. Once a baby starts pressing down on them with their gums, then it just starts to crumble. And that's kind of what it's like if, that's, if all we have is just knowledge. Right? It might look put together, but if that knowledge doesn't lead to any conviction, if it doesn't lead to wisdom right, as to what the scripture says, and it doesn't shape the way we think and live, then we're just going to be like that puff, right? At the first sign of trial or temptation, when life doesn't seem to be going our way, then we just start to fall apart and we just start to crumble, right? We succumb to being anxious, depressed, fearful, maybe even angry, right? So don't be a puff, okay? Now, if you're a newer believer, right, uh, or maybe some of what you're hearing uh, from the series is new, um, that's okay too, Right? It takes time uh, for us to develop our convictions. Right? It takes time to wrestle with many of the truths in Scripture. Uh, 
but if we, you know, and you might have a lot of questions, and that's good. And it shows that you're trying to figure things out. Uh, but if what you're hearing in this series is not new, right, I would encourage you just not to sit on the knowledge that you have and just let it puff you up. Uh, use it to strengthen your walk and use it to strengthen the walk of others. Um, so our topic for tonight, uh, speak to the confidence true believers can have in their eternal life uh, that God has given and has promised to them and has promised to secure forever. Right? It's the doc- doctrine that uh, we refer to as uh, eternal security, or uh, we also know it as uh, perseverance of the saints. Uh, now, back in our light fellowship days, uh, we went over a series on soteriology, right? the study of salvation. Right? In fact, it was um, just last year, uh, almost exactly a year ago uh, today, uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving break, um, just like it is today, uh, we went over the exact same topic. Right? We went over the exact same topic of uh, our eternal security. So for our college students or recently graduated college students, uh, this should sound vaguely familiar. Right? Or if it does, this is probably why. Right? The doctrine uh, is listed in Section 7 of our Articles of Faith under the title, uh, what you see there, Eternal Security and the Assurance of Believers. Uh, so this is what our church uh, uh, has stated. And then I, you can just uh, read along, and it says, uh, We believe that all believers, once saved, are kept by God's power and are thus secure in Christ forever. Uh, they cannot lose their salvation. We believe that the testimony of God's word clearly forbids the use of our security as a license for sin. And we believe that God is in the process of conforming all believers into the image of Christ. And this transformation is evidence of a believer's salvation. The assurance of a believer's salvation comes from the fruit of obedience to the Lord. And some of you may wonder, well, you know, and some of you may know people uh, that have maybe professed to be Christians and have turned away. Right? They no longer uh, proclaim to be Christians anymore. And they um, deny Christ uh, when they once uh, had claimed to accepted him as their savior. Right, there's numer- numerous passages that warns uh, believers falling away or speaking of believers potentially falling away. Uh, even Jesus said that uh, some of those that followed him, uh, he would say to them, depart from me, right? For I never knew you. Uh, so what do we say of, of those people? Uh, well, John gives us an answer in 1 John, uh, 1 John 2, uh, 19. He says, uh, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. Uh, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Well, uh, if that's the case, well then, uh, how can someone be sure of their salvation? Well, security, like salvation itself, it, it doesn't and it can't uh, just come from us. Right? Just like salvation, it's entirely the work of God. Uh, so too is the eternal security of our salvation. Now, uh, this is the Westminster Confession uh, this is there. Uh, this this was put together, I believe, in the 1600s. It's like 1646 or 1647. And uh, for them, this is uh, their chapter or article uh, regarding the perseverance of the saints. And I'll just read a, a portion of it because uh, we'll spend uh, some of our time looking into this a little bit more closely. Uh, and it says there, uh, they whom God have accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. The perseverance of the saints depends not on their own free will, but upon the unmutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and the abiding of the spirit and the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace. Uh, so tonight, uh, with this uh, framework that we have here in mind, um, we're going to highlight three reasons why true Christians can trust the salvation God has given them uh, to be eternally secure. Um, and so we'll go over three, the three reasons. Uh, number one is the immutable character of the Father. Uh, number two is the intercession of the Son. And then number three is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, so first... Uh, the first reason uh, we can trust our salvation uh, from God is secure is that God himself is unchangeable. Uh, Malachi 3.6 says simply, For I, the Lord, do not change. 
Psalm 102, uh, 25 to 27 reads this. Uh, of old, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. You see, in this way, God is distinct from all his creation. Right? God is perpetually the same. Right? He is subject to no change in his being, his attributes, or his determinations. Right? All that he is today, he has always been, and ever and forever will be. Right? He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect, and he and being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. So then, just as he is unchangeable in his person, we can find comfort in the security of our salvation because his decrees are also unchanging, and also because his love for us is inseparable. Um, so first, uh, we'll go over his, uh, his immutable decrees. Uh, now, Psalm 119, 89 says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And Hebrews 6, 17 through 18 uh, says this. It says, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge will have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is before us. And then if you... Uh, can turn, or if you can just uh, look up here, uh, Isaiah 55, uh, verses 8 to 11. And in it, it reads, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed for the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11 says, So my word will, which so, so will be, so my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So you understand that Man's purposes cannot compare to God's purposes. And that makes sense, right? Because we all have plans, right? We all have desires, things that we would want to accomplish. But just because we want them to happen doesn't mean that they will. And just because, and because it doesn't work out, because things don't work out according to our plans, well, then our plans have to change, right? Maybe some of you wanted to go to a certain school, but you couldn't get in or Pursue a certain career, but maybe you changed your mind. Um, there, may have, there may be some of you who wanted a certain job, but you didn't get it. And there may be uh, some of you who maybe planned on getting married by a certain age, but you know that age has passed and you're still single. Even if you do everything that you can to make it happen, right? again, just because we plan for things, it doesn't guarantee that it's going to happen. Right? But it might not be due to a lack of will or desire. Right? Or, or it might be. Right? It's possible that your plans have to change because you had a lack of will or desire. Right? You wanted to get into a certain school or get into a certain program, but you just didn't study hard enough. Right? Or maybe it's a lack of ability. Right? Maybe you just weren't talented enough or smart enough to get in. Right? Or you thought you'd get a job, but it went to someone that was maybe just more qualified than you. Right? Uh, you just weren't, just not good enough. Or it could be just the circumstance that you find yourself in. Right? It's not due to a lack of will or a lack of desire, but it's just the circumstance that you find yourself in. Right? Maybe some of you ladies are wanting to get married, but no one's asking and maybe some of you guys are asking, but you're getting turned down, right? And it's not for a lack of desire, right? I mean, it's something that you really want, right? And I know it's probably not because of a lack of ability, right? Many of you, in the hopes of marriage or raising a family, are working hard preparing yourselves to be excellent wives, excellent mothers, excellent husbands, and excellent fathers. 
right? And knowing some of you, I know that you would be, but maybe just haven't had the chance. And when you guys were children, right, you may have wanted to be certain things when you grew up, right? Like, I don't know, you wanted to be an astronaut or a princess or a Jedi, right? But reality sets in and you're like, well, you know, I can't be an astronaut. So, well, when I was younger and I still kind of do now, right, I wanted to be, I wanted to be, I wanted to be in the NBA or at some point when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be Luke Skywalker, right? I don't know. Some of you guys, you guys don't even know who he is, right? I don't know. Right? You guys are like, yeah, I know who he is. He's, he's that old Jedi guy that Ray was looking for, right? Yeah, but no, right? No. But the MBA thing, right? It didn't work out, right? right? I, I can imagine, no matter how hard I wanted it, no matter how hard I tried, you know, no matter how hard I practiced, it just wasn't going to happen, right? It's not that I lacked the will, you know? I only lacked the opportunity, right? <laughs> and perhaps a little ability, a little, right? But didn't happen, right? So you have to do something else. Your plans have changed, right? But we can rejoice that that's not the way with God, right? Never does, never does he lack the desire to accomplish his will, and never will he lack the ability to accomplish his will. And because his will is sovereign, circumstances are never beyond his control, right? In fact, that's the opposite, right? Everything that happens is ordained by him, so with that, uh, with that in mind, I'd want you to turn, or you can also uh, look here uh, to Romans 8, uh, 29 to 30. And in this passage it reads, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So in those verses, we know that even before we were born, and really even before the universe was born, before the foundations of the earth were established, God had already set forth a plan for those whom he would call according to, to his purpose, right? He began a chain of events beginning with his foreknowledge of them and ultimately ending in their conformity to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, in glorification, right? The doctrine of eternal security, otherwise known as the perseverance of saints, teaches us that this chain of events will never be broken. Or to put it a little more plainly, what God starts, right? God is guaranteed to finish. That's why we can have the confidence that our salvation is eternally secure, by the mere fact that he foreknew and predestined us, right, the only possible conclusion is that he would complete our salvation in glorification. And when you look at what Paul is writing, right, he's, and at the time he is speaking, right, all these events that he's talking about, almost all of them have already occurred right, to his readers. Right? They have already been, right, God already foreknew them. He already predestined them. Right. If they are saved, uh, they were called, and they are justified. Um, but then he says that they were also glorified. Right? He doesn't say that um, they will be glorified or they are going to be glorified. He says that they are also glorified. Right? It's as if Paul is so sure of the outcome that he's saying it as if it already happened. Right? And Paul shares the same confidence with the Philippians when he says, uh, in Philippians 1, he says that, for I'm, very for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jude and Peter, they also share the same confidence. Uh, at the end of Jude, uh, he says in his short epistle, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with joy. Right? To the only God of our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority uh, before all time and now and forever. Amen. And then 1 Peter 3, 
um, sorry, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation already through faith for a salvation ready to be re revealed at the last time. But not only can we be sure that God has eternally secured the salvation of his elect because his plans and decrees don't change, but it's also because his love doesn't change. Right? God's love for his people is unchangeable, it's eternal, and it's inseparable. Um, so first, uh, we saw that his decrees are immutable, and his love is inseparable. Uh, Ephesians uh, 1, 4 through 5, it says, uh, Just as he chose us before him, or chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself. And it was in love that God had predestined us to be his children. Right? Even before we existed, God loved us. Right? There wasn't any quality we had that made God love us. Right? It wasn't as if God wanted to wait and see if we were worth loving before he would decide to save us. Right? Because if he did, one, right, he would never love us because there's nothing in, for him in us to love. Right? How can a perfectly holy God love us who, as we learned before, are totally depraved? Right? And because of that, because he never would have loved us, then he never would have saved us, right? especially not at the cost of his son. Um, but to quote um, Charles Spurgeon, he says this, he says, God foresaw all the sins you would ever have. It was all present to his sacred mind, and yet he loved you and loves you still. To his people, God says in Jeremiah 31, right, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And all throughout scripture, right, you see God's love and it's described as his loving kindness, right, his steadfast love or his covenantal love. Right, Jeremiah um, writes uh, this famous, uh, these famous verses about God's steadfast or his loving kindness. He says, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Right? And uh, if you're familiar with where that passage is found, right, you know that it's found where? It's found in Lamentations, right? Not, not the happiest of books, right? Lamentations. It's not a book that you would consider, oh, that's where that verse would be found. Um, but... You have to understand what's going on, right? And uh, in Jeremiah's time, when he's writing this book, right, the land of Israel or Judah has been taken into captivity, right? The Babylonians have come in. They've taken the city, right? They've pretty much destroyed everything. They're taking people away. And there, Jeremiah is just, you know, looking at what's left of Jerusalem, right? Just the pile of, Ash and smoke and rubble, you know, probably dead bodies scattered all around, bodies of people that he knew, bodies of people he was begging to repent. You know, the temple is destroyed, right? I mean, Solomon's temple, like this is, you know, considering that this was God's home, right? Considering that this was God's home, this is probably maybe like the greatest building in history, and it's destroyed. And it's not lost on Jeremiah just how devastating he, how devastating this all is. And he writes, he writes in Lamentations, he says, My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. I mean, 
Jeremiah and the nation have undergone probably the worst thing that could have ever happened to them. Right? I mean, this is trial beyond what we could probably ever imagine. Right? And he's there. He's, you know, sounds like he's ready to lose hope. Right? And then um, he says in a few verses later, right? He says, surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. And then he says, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The, soul, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. And Jeremiah Jeremiah, he's, he's not a puff, right? He's not a puff. He doesn't allow, right, even though the circumstances, and he does feel devastated, and he feels crushed, and he feels like he's about to lose all hope. He doesn't, because he knows of the Lord's loving kindness. Right? He knows that God's love is inseparable from him and his people. But not only is right, because and because God's love is unchangeable and eternal, that makes it inseparable, right? So we know that really nothing can separate us from God's love. And we're all familiar with Romans eight thirty nine and forty. Uh, it's up there, or if you would like to turn there, and many of you probably already know this by heart. And it says, "For I am." Or actually, this would be uh, 38, uh, 38 and 39. I don't think there is a 40. But uh, 38 and 39 says, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And 38 and 39. Right? Verses 38 and 39. Right. What can you name that's more powerful than God that can remove his love from us? Right. Paul tries to name everything possible. Right. He lists out, and to use a word from one of my favorite teachers, a cacophony of terrors and threats to God's love. Right. Everything under creation, and none of those things are able to separate us from God's love. Right. Nothing about the human condition right, is death, powerful enough to separate us from God's love? Well, Paul says that death doesn't have any victory and death doesn't have any sting, right? It can claim our bodies, but it can't remove God's love from his people. Well, then how about life, right? What about all the troubles that we have in this world? What if we had to face tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, right? What if we face those things in this life and they actually come and lead to death? Well, Paul says that in these, in all these things, we are over. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. So then, how about angels or principalities or powers? Right? Angels or demons or other powers? Now, when angels are described in the Bible, um, they actually sound pretty terrifying, right? They're not. They're not what we see in cartoons or greeting cards, right? Do you remember? Uh, we've been going through Luke on Sundays, right? Do you remember uh, one of the first things that Gabriel says to Zacharias and Mary? He says, do not be afraid, right? And when the women, uh, when they went and saw the angel in the tomb uh, on Easter Sunday, the angel said, do not be afraid, right? Why do you think the angel said that? You know, it's probably because they were afraid, right? And Zacharias, uh, it says of him, that fear gripped him. Right? Now, we might not exactly know what these angels looked like uh, when they appeared, but it might just be their radiance or their holiness right? that, that emanates from them that would cause us fear. I think, you know, it's pretty safe to say that some of us, like if we're around someone that we think is really holy, you know, we, we you know, get a little nervous, we get a little uncomfortable, you know, like we sit up straighter, you know, we... We're more mindful of everything we do. Very, 
get very anxious. I imagine if I, you know, was walking the halls of Grace Church and, you know, I met, let's say, John MacArthur, I think I'd be pretty scared, you know. I, I might like, I might be like Zacharias and I, you know, I might turn mute, you know, and that would, would be without any help of any angels, right? And if he saw me, you know, twitching and trembling, I wouldn't be surprised if he said, you know, do not be afraid, right? <laughs> it's not uncommon for angels to do God's work of judgment in the Bible. So, you know, so if God is sending an angel, maybe he's sending, um, sending them to execute his judgment. Right? Because as sinful beings, uh, holiness can be pretty terrifying. Right? So, uh, but it's not angels, right? Not angels uh, whom God uses to exercise his judgment. Um, or demons that can separate us from God's love, right? It's nothing now, and it's nothing later, right? There's no place in the universe that's too high or too low that God's love wouldn't reach. Like the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shoal, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell to the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Right? And in case uh, Paul is missing anything, right, Paul decides to include just everything else that's under creation. And he says none of that can separate us from God's love. Right? So I hope that we're able to see that uh, because God doesn't change, right, his plans won't change, right? They'll take place exactly as he wills, right? And his love for us won't ever end, and there is no one or anything that's able to change it. And if God loved us so much that he was willing to sacrifice his own son, it, wouldn't, it would be in vain if he wasn't able to see our salvation to its rightful end, right? To our glorification. So when, he, so when his word says that his elect are forever secure, we can believe with full assurance that it's true because one, uh, it's bound by his word and two, it's bound by his love in Christ Jesus. And, and that leads us to uh, our second reason why we can have the full assurance of our salvation and that our salvation is eternally secure. Uh, that's because uh, it's the, um, it's number two, uh, it's the intercession of the son. So we first saw through um, the Father's immutable character that we are confident that he has the power to complete our salvation. And another evidence of our preserving salvation is the Son's intercession, right? Jesus, Jesus Christ interceding on our behalf. Right? And so we'll look at, um, the, we'll look at two ways. Um, so first, it's through his prayer. Right? One way Jesus intercedes for us is through prayer. Right? One of the roles... Uh, one of Jesus' roles that God has given to him is the role of our high priest. Right? Back in Old Testament times, uh, God communicated with Israel using two different types of people. Right? One were the prophets. Right? Their responsibility was to bring God's word to the people or to Israel. Um, and then there were the priests. Right? Their responsibility was to bring the people's voice or Israel's voice to God. Right? They were used when people needed to respond to God and to make atonement for their sins. Well, Jesus is both. Right? He's not only our prophet, but he's also our priest. And, but when he's praying for us, he's acting like our priest. Uh, in John 17, uh, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he says this, uh, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I have come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Right, Jesus is interceding on behalf of his disciples. Right, remember what's happening. Right, Jesus is about to be arrested. 
and we find him praying for his disciples. He's, it won't be long before he's going to be crucified. Uh, and so he's asking God the Father to keep his disciples. Jesus kept guard of his, guard of his disciples, and now uh, since he'll be taken away, he's asking God to keep them too. Right? But that prayer uh, continues, and it extends beyond his disciples, uh, because later on, he continues and he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but of those who are who but for those who also believe in me through their word. Right. He's not just asking that God keep his disciples, he's asking God to keep you and me also. Right. Later uh, in the prayer he continues and he says, I am them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He also prays that those who are given to him, the true believers, will be able to see his glory. Right? He's asking God to keep them until they can see his glory. Right? But his intercession uh, in prayer uh, isn't just a one-time event. It wasn't just that one time while he was here on earth that he made uh, intercession for his people through prayer. Right? He's continually making intercession uh, for believers. Um, if you turn to Hebrews 7, uh, 23 and 25, or 23 to 25, there it reads, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right. Uh, verse 25 in the King James, it says, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for, for them. So you see, the former priests, right, the Old Testament priests, they only served for a temporary time. Right? It was temporary because they were people. They would eventually die. Right? They, would, they could pray for the people. They could offer sacrifices for the people. But sooner or later, their services would stop. Right? It was a temporary position, and it offered only a temporary solution. But Jesus' priesthood is permanent, right? It lasts forever. And there's another thing, as Hebrew 8 explains, uh, the Old Testament priests were serving in the tabernacle and the temple. But Jesus is acting as our priest, being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? Christ is making his intercession for us as he sits next to the Father in the heavenly places. And he's there forever petitioning on your behalf for God to keep you. Right, so now, when someone uh, shares that they've been praying for you, right, I hope you find that as a great encouragement. Right, maybe you have shared something with them about maybe something that you're going through, maybe something that you're concerned with, something that's troubling you. And they later come and they tell you, you know, oh, I've been praying for you. Right, uh, that's a great encouragement and a great blessing, isn't it? But what if you know, Pastor Henry or one of the elders came to you one day and they said, hey, we're praying for you. Right? They, came up to, they came up to you and asked you how you were doing and said that they were praying for you, you know, about whatever it is that maybe uh, you're going through. Now, if you don't know, I believe this is true, but uh, if you're part of the membership of this church, I do believe that the elders, um, they actually do pray for all the members. They do pray for all the members. But that's like a special form of encouragement, isn't it? It's like someone who is so close to God is praying for you on your behalf. So then you can imagine that Jesus Christ, your Savior, right, sitting next to God the Father, right, is asking the Father to guard you forever until your glorification is complete. Right, there you have the prayer of Jesus, prayer, praying according to God's will right, to cause you to persevere in your faith. Right? How would God not answer that prayer? Right? A prayer that is aligned perfectly with his will right? and performed by his perfect son. 
And so that's one way in which Jesus intercedes for us um, through his prayer, but he also intercedes through us through his protection, um, through his protection. Right? Our confidence in on the persevering of our faith doesn't just rest on the prayers from our Savior, but his protection. Right? John chapter 10 is famous for containing one of the I am statements or a couple of the I am statements uh, made by Jesus. And in this case, uh, he says that uh, I am the good shepherd. Right? So uh, listen to what he has to say about his sheep. So this is uh, John chapter 10. Uh, you can turn there or read uh, as I get there and I will read it too. He says, starting in verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Okay. So under the protection of their good shepherd, the believer has the ultimate promise of security. Right? Jesus says that his sheep uh, that he gives eternal life to his sheep, and one, they will never perish, and two, right, no one will snatch them out of his hand. Right, as we look at maybe each of these phrases a little bit more closely, um, he starts by saying, my sheep hear my voice. When Jesus talks about the parable of the good shepherd in the beginning of the chapter, he says that the sheep will not follow the voice of a stranger. Right, that's the power of his voice. It's the power of his call. Right? If there's any doubt to uh, the power of the shepherd's voice, uh, we can look a chapter over. Uh, if you can recall uh, the encounter Jesus had with Lazarus. Right? Lazarus was dead for, I think it was four days before Jesus was able to get to him. Right? And they were crying and weeping and you know, they were sad and they were wondering why you know, Jesus couldn't save him. Right, why did he come so late? So all Jesus said is, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus is brought back to life. Right. Because it came from Jesus' voice, Lazarus, who's been dead, right, there's no other response that he has, even dead, but to do what Jesus says and come alive and come forth. Right, and if bringing back the dead to life with the power of his voice wasn't proof, proof enough of his power, then we can go back all the way to the beginning where Jesus' voice was enough to form all of creation. So it's not just a voice that just sounds different from other voices. Right? It's not just the voice of Jesus versus the voice of somebody else. Right? When he speaks, his call is irresistible and it's irrevocable. Right? It can be synonymous with what we learn as the effectual call or those whom he called, like in Romans 8. Right? And only those that are truly believers will listen to him. Right? And those that listen to him, it says, Jesus says of the sheep, and they follow me. Right? And they follow me. Not only do the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, they follow Right? They follow him because they know his voice. That's what Jesus said earlier. Uh, it's really that they obey him. Right? They hear his voice and they obey. Right? Earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus says that he was the bread, or he is the bread of life. And in saying that, it was a hard thing for a lot of the many or the multitude of disciples to grasp. They couldn't understand it. And so they left. Right? They left Jesus. They wandered away from the shepherd. They wandered away because they weren't his sheep. So Jesus turns to the 12 and he basically says, are you going to go too? Right? Everyone else is leaving. Are you going to leave too? Right? And what does Peter say? He says, well, to whom shall we go? Right? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? His sheep know, so they follow. And kind of as an aside, right, how do you know if someone or if maybe even you're truly saved? Right? Do you know? Like, how do you know you're one of the sheep that belongs to Christ? 
right? By looking at this passage, you can ask yourself, do you hear the voice of the shepherd and do you follow him? Sometimes, or some people might think that the doctrine of the perseverance of saints or uh, eternal security means that because they have eternal security that they can do whatever they want, right? And live however they want because they know that they're saved. But what type of Christian would think that way? Probably someone that's maybe not really a Christian, right? Because if they were Christ's sheep, they would listen to his voice and they would follow him and they would obey his commandments. Right? In 1 John 2, John says, By this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him. The one who says that he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. If they don't listen to the shepherd, there's a good chance that they're probably not his sheep. Of course, there will be times when we as Christians are disobedient, when we struggle and we wander. Uh, But that uh, shouldn't be the character of our lives. Back to John chapter 10, uh, Jesus also says of his sheep, Right, he says, I know them. Right? He knows his sheep. Right, this is, this is a relational knowing. Right? This is knowing by experience, not just knowing the facts. Right? Back in verse 3, Jesus says that he calls his sheep by name. Right? He calls them by name and he leads them out. Right? He knows them intimately. Right? More than, it's more than just, hey, I know sheep. Right? That's a black sheep, that's a white sheep, that's a male sheep, and that's a female sheep. Right? It's, I know everything about that sheep. Right? It's that sheep right there. Right? His name's John. Right? And he likes eating grass that's under the tree. And when he sleeps, he likes sleeping close to the gate. Right? I know that because I know him. That's my sheep. I watch him every day. Right? And you can tell that that's John because he walks with a limp. Right? He walks with a limp because one time he got caught or he got lost and he got caught in the thicket and the wolves saw him and they were ready to take him. So I ran and fought off those wolves to save him. Right? And I still have the scars to show for it. Right? And even that, John, he wanders off sometimes, but I'll always bring him back because I love him. And I also know him, though, because... I remember when I formed his inward parts and I wove him in his mother's womb. And that's because the good shepherd's knowledge of the sheep goes back even before the foundation of the world. That's the shepherd that knows and loves his flock. So the foundational question really isn't do you know Christ, but it's does Christ know you? It's not that because we know him and we listen to the shepherd that we're his sheep. Right? It's because we're his sheep that we're able to listen and obey his voice. Right? He foreknew you. That means long before you were even born, God knew you. Right? Ephesians 1, as we looked at earlier, says you were predestined even before the foundation of the world. Right? And Romans 8 saw that he foreknew us, then predestined us. Right? So if you kind of put that all together, right? God knew you and chose you even before the world existed. Right? Even before Adam existed, God had already set his affection on you. He made his sovereign choice in you and set you apart for himself. And then back to John, John 10. He also says then, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Right? He says, I give eternal life. Right? It's a present tense. It's not, uh, I will give them or I'll wait and see. Then I'll give it to them. It's not something they have to wait for necessarily. It's given to them at the time they follow the shepherd. I give eternal life. So just from these statements, you can trust that your faith will preserve to the end. If you listen to the voice of the shepherd and follow him, you belong to him. Or to put it this way, because you're his sheep, you will follow your shepherd. He loved you and he chose you from before the world even began. And he called you to himself so that you had no choice but to answer in faith. And he's given you the promise of eternal life. 
You have it now, but you'll experience it fully later. It's like, like an inheritance, right? You have it, you might have it now, but you won't really have it or experience it until later. And then he says then, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? This is the infinite power of the shepherd that he can say that he has the power to protect you from ever being taken away from him. Right? He cannot lose you and he won't ever let go of you. Right? This is what it says in Psalms 37. It says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. Because the Lord is one, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. God's people are never forsaken because God is always holding their hand. It's not up to us to be holding on to Christ for the keeping of our salvation, right? It is Christ who is holding on to us, right? And that's the core of this doctrine. I mean, if the perseverance of our faith were up to us holding on to God, we would all have let go long ago, right? At the first sign of trouble, we're letting go. Uh, MacArthur says about the security of our salvation, if you could lose it, you would, Right? But it's the hand of our Savior who's holding on to us tightly, that we're secure no matter what. And then, as extra emphasis on the promise, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Right? It's like we have God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son both holding on to us. Right? Two indestructible cords securing our souls for salvation. But if trusting the immutability of the Father and having the intercession of the Son isn't already enough, right, we have a third reason to be assured of our salvation enduring to the end. Right? And that's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the, we have the Holy Spirit uh, as a promise of our salvation and to ensure that we will work out our salvation to the very end. Right? It says... Uh, in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, uh, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Right? We can be confident in our faith. Uh, we can be confident that our faith will persevere to the end because upon our salvation, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Right? He's the promise that our faith will endure. Right? Back in Paul's day, if you wanted to send a letter, right, you write the letter, stick it in the envelope, and then you would seal it. Right? You would seal it with some sort of like a personal stamp. Right? You have a stamp, maybe it's like a, a ring that you have. You uh, put it on some hot wax and then place it on the envelope to seal it. Right, oftentimes the seal uh, was some sort of symbol, right, unique to the sender, so that upon receipt, right, you would know who the letter is coming from. And when the letter came with the seal, right, and the seal was intact, then you would know that that letter has come to you safe from any type of altercation. Right. No one went in and changed anything in the letter. Right? So when the Holy Spirit acts like a seal, then we can be confident that this promise has come from God himself and that this promise comes unaltered, right? communicated exactly how God intended. And second, he's the, what Paul says, the pledge of our inheritance. Right? The pledge of our inheritance. The idea there, it's kind of like a down payment, right? And you guys are maybe familiar with what a down payment is, right? It's a partial payment now that ensures that you will finish the transaction. Right? You would put down down payment to say that you are going to guarantee that you're going through with this transaction. Right? So I'm going to 
put this down as a promise that I'm going to hold up my end of the deal. Right? Usually you do that only when you're buying something big, right? When you maybe purchase a car or if you purchase a house, right? You're probably putting down, especially if you're buying a house, a lot of money. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? I mean, it shows just how serious you are about buying that house. It's like here. Here's all the money I've ever had for all my life for all these years. Here, you take it. That's how serious I am that I want to purchase this. And then, not only that, then you can have all my money for the next 30 years. Or that's kind of what it feels like, right? right? It's highly unlikely that you would put that type of payment down and later on and change your mind and be like, that, uh, ne never mind, right? it's okay, I didn't want that house anyways. Or I didn't want, uh, forget it. Right? Right? Would you walk away from you know, those hundreds of thousands of dollars that you worked so hard to earn? Right? Who has that money to throw around so casually? So when that payment is made, it's pretty much like a guarantee that you're going to pay the rest. Right? Pay the rest of what you owe. Well, then we know that God is serious about our inheritance because he's willing to put the Holy Spirit himself, he's willing to put God himself as the down payment. It's almost as if God is saying that for my glory, I am making you my people and to prove it, here's the Holy Spirit within you. Right? There's no greater guarantee that God can give us than giving us himself. And so, just kind of looking through these three reasons, right, we can be sure that our salvation is secured for eternity. Right. Each one of them is rooted in our God. Each one of those reasons is rooted in our God. And like our salvation, our eternal security has no aid from human works. It's only by the power of God. And it cannot be any other way. If any part of salvation were up to the work of man, he would never obtain it. And if there's any part of keeping our if any part of keeping our salvation were up to the work of man, no, no sooner than we would attain it. It would be lost. Right? We have one, firstly, the immutable character of God the Father. Right? We know he's able to accomplish his will of bringing his elect to the ultimate realization of their eternal salvation. Because of the power of his word, he always accomplishes his will. And not only that, right? he has an eternal and unchanging love for his people, which he will never revoke. Right? No power in the universe is able to separate us from God's love. Right? It'll always be there. I read in this book, uh, and I'm not sure if it's a, if it's just you know like a story or if it's a true story, um, but the author, in writing about God's love, um, he says that there was one day that a preacher, a preacher went to visit a farmer. And so as the preacher approaches the farmer's house, he looks up at his barn and he sees on this weather vane uh, the words inscripted, God is love. And so that really upset the preacher. And so when he met the farmer, he said to him something along the lines of, do you think that God's love is so variable and changeable like the wind? And the farmer replied, no, those words are up there to remind me that wherever the wind blows, God is love. Right? Nothing in the universe is able to separate us from God's love. And not only that, we have a great high priest and a great shepherd in Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. Right? Not only did he intercede by paying for our sins at the cross, but he prays for us. He promises to protect us. Right, we're his sheep, and no one will snatch us out of his hand or out from his hand. Right? How much more secure then can the sheep be? Right? They have the divine promise from God himself. Right? There's no need for them to fear any evil 
they'll be safe. No one can snatch them from their shepherd. And the shepherd gives them eternal life. He is going to bring them home to dwell in his house forever. And lastly, we're also indwelt with the Holy Spirit. God living in us. He is the promise that we belong and always will belong to him. Each reason alone um, that we've studied would be enough to guarantee our salvation forever, right? Each one of them is like an unbreakable cord, right? A cord that binds us to our God, ensuring that we will never be separated from him and that, his, and that the salvation that he promised will never be severed. But the assurance of each member of the Godhead forms almost like this threefold cord intertwined with one another, right? And that can surely never be broken, And it's the ultimate security a believer can have because there's really no greater security than can be found other than in God himself. And so with that, let's close our time with a word of prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, we just uh, thank you um, for your word. Uh, We just thank you for who you are, um, knowing that our salvation and the promise of our salvation is kept entirely upon you. Thank you for not leaving it into our hands, um, because if it were, uh, we would surely lose it. So thank you for loving us and keeping us. Uh, Thank you for securing us uh, forever. Uh, So we just thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.